0: where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500, 500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500, 500
1: Okay, it's time to commit. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
2: This episode contains descriptions of child sex abuse. Listener discretion is advised.
3: Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Real Crime Profile. I'm Laura Richards, criminal behavioral analyst founder of Paladin National Stalking Advocacy Service and former New Scotland Yard and host of the podcast Crime Analyst. And with me today is...
2: I'm Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer-producer of Criminal Minds.
4: And I am Lisa Zambetti. I'm casting director for CBS's Criminal Minds. And I'm so glad that, Laura, you're back here because uh, there's so many things I wanted to ask you and have you weigh in on the case that we are continuing to cover that Jim and I started covering last week. and And that is the case of Lyle and Eric Menendez and their murder of their parents, and then also connecting it to this just... Explosive documentary that lifts the lid off of child sexual abuse in the boy group Menudo, um, and I always like to go back and, and see, you know, what was going on at this time, 1989, and so it's so interesting. Well, I don't know if this case was on your radar back in '89 or when these these trials came forward in 1993 or 1996, but when you Google What was significant about 1989? Things like Tiananmen Square come up or um, the Exxon Valdez and things like that. And the Menendez trial also charts when you look up significant things that happened in 1989. And I'm just wondering, was this at all on your radar?
3: Well, I'll be totally honest, as I always am. And it wasn't. It's not a case that I know about i've spent a lot of time digging into it though Mm -hmm. and i have to say that the more you dig and the deeper you go the more angry i've become about this being such a spectacular safeguarding failure first and foremost of two little boys and what a horrific miscarriage of justice Mm -hmm. and i've been trying to you know think about well what's different from then to now and Certainly for me, coercive control is something that had not been talked about within the Peacock, the three part documentary, which we obviously recommend our listeners watch, but certainly with the whole case, the spiders web of coercive control just seems to be completely misunderstood. And the decisions that were taken by the court, by the DA's office and by the media, I have to say the framing of these two boys and men is such a faux narrative and it makes my blood boil quite frankly how they've been portrayed and how they've been let down
4: yeah absolutely i think what i mentioned to to people that if you you can go watch the entire 1993 trial by going to court tv they have the the whole thing and i just hit play and i've been streaming it um hours and hours of it while i'm folding laundry and while i'm cooking dinner and seeing the entire context of the trial is so different than at the time when you're just seeing the evening news little sound bites It it makes so much more sense. The testimony, um, Eric, on the stand, you can see the lead up to his emotional breakdown. You can see, you know, hour after hour after hour uh, holding up to cross-examination and his story, you know, really making a lot more sense than if you see it completely out of context, which is what most people saw.
2: Right, right. But here's the big thing, though. That first trial ended in a mistrial. And so what happened was they did it again. And that was in 1996. So the first trial was 93. And the next trial was 96. After the OJ debacle, the DA's office in Los Angeles was very embarrassed by what happened in OJ. And I'm sure the judicial college there decided that they weren't going to let something like that happen again. And they made this judge made what I think are some very very strange, restrictive findings or rulings uh, with the second trial. They would not allow the defense to bring any evidence about sexual victimization. And then at the end of the trial, the prosecutor argues, well, you didn't hear anything about sexual victimization. No evidence came in about that. Well, they were prevented from bringing in the evidence in the first trial. were there, 61 witnesses that they brought forward? Was that the right number, Lisa? Well, I read
3: it, it was 51. And... 51, okay.
2: Yeah. And 51 witnesses that could not testify. And those witnesses cross-corroborated each other in a lot of ways. The disclosures that were made by the boys when they were kids, when they were young, seven, eight years old, nine, ten years old, those disclosures to family members or friends are incredibly pivotal evidence. And on top of that, they literally wrote it down in letters dated back the, at that time. So this current cross corroboration should have come into the trial. It should have been in there. And it, it clearly shows that there is a there was some kind of decision made to not allow what I believe and you can weigh in yourselves, obviously, on what you believe. But what I believe is actually a legitimate self-defense argument that yeah. these boys for years had been sexually victimized by their father and their mother apparently had told them she knew about it all the time. And she blamed the boys, which is we've seen this What was in the movie Precious. Remember that movie Precious where the daughter was raped by the father and the mother blamed the daughter precious. This is exactly what the mother did in this case, or at least what the guys say their mother did. She blamed them. She took it out on them. She was was cold and distant to them when she should have
3: been protecting them. Right, Laura? Well, I'm going to talk about Kitty in a moment, but firstly, I just want to take a step back because for me, yes, there were 51 witnesses, and we're talking about teachers, we're talking about the tennis coach, we're talking about neighbors, we're talking about family members who all said the same thing right. about multiple forms of abuse. And I think for me, Jim and Lisa, what seems to be missing is that it's multiple forms of abuse. It wasn't just yes. sexual. Yes. That was one part of what he did to them, but the harsh punishments, the pushing their heads under water to teach them to swim, making them fear for their lives, the isolation, the rules and regulations that they had to abide by, the emotional and physical torture, the abusing both boys, but getting Lyle to abuse Eric and telling them that they can't talk to each other, this disempowerment through fear and regulation. And this is why this is coercive control, the showering with them, which the boys said after they shot their parents, when they were talking to Robert Rand, the journalist, Eric talked about that. These aren't things that came out later on at the trial. These are disclosures that were made to a journalist about the showering together, boys that are seven to 14 showering with their father, other family members knew what was going on. And I think them constantly having to push their feelings down and their anger down and this regulation of them where they couldn't express or remote, of course that's going to come bubbling up. And all of those aspects of abuse I feel was not really pinpointed by an expert. What I hope will happen now is that an expert will talk to all of those things that disempowered those two boys who went on to become men who found And well, they found out and realized no one was going to help them. My belief is that when they saw other people having the opportunity to do things, to intervene, and they didn't, that taught them that no one will save them, Mm -hmm. but themselves with their mother. That was the last conversation they were trying to protect her. Then they tell her about the abuse. And she basically said that she knew all along. Now, I believe that was the final straw. You know, the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. And as we know with abuse victims, Jim and Lisa, it often with children and women, it doesn't happen in the moment. When you're less powerful, then there's a plan and there's premeditation that happens. And Eric did talk to Lyle. He broke the rule and told Lyle that he couldn't handle it anymore. And then a plan was formed. And I just feel that all of that, the power imbalance of Jose, that in the first trial, not one person said anything good about him. Not mm-hmm. one.
4: Not even his it sister. Just, yeah, Not, not even, even sis- his
3: sister. And I listened to the testimony as well, Lisa. I spent my weekend doing that because I felt this case was worthy of my attention. And I listened to what people said. They said he was cruel. He was domineering. He was controlling. But he yeah. was a cruel tormentor. Do people not think that that's how he's going to be to the boys and what goes on behind closed doors with his wife? He's going to be the law unto himself. And they lived in fear and terror, even though they had this image of being this perfect Beverly Hills family. So I'll take Kitty as a separate, but I did really want to just emphasize the subordination, the subjugation, the entrapment, these unrealistic expectations that the tennis coach spoke about. These boys were beginners and he expected them to be taught psychological subversive tactics to beat other kids when they're just beginner tennis players and Wadlingham, the the coach, expressed that in court, but he also challenged Jose many times. Now, Jose didn't listen to a word that he said, even though Jose wasn't a professional tennis player who was world ranked, this tennis coach was, and he said Mm -hmm. the arrogance of jose was astounding and that's what they ended up having confrontation after confrontation about and in the end he was fired and he sits with this awful guilt if only he had done something and what i also want to say to the people who didn't step up that's a huge and spectacular safeguarding failure there were multiple opportunities to change the course of these boys lives and to prevent this from happening and when the boys realized that no one was going to save them they did what they had to do and I don't agree that murder is the right thing but I can understand the psychology of what took them to that point and why they acted out thereafter and the coercive control for me the serious harm and damage that Jose Menendez caused to those boys for them to say that prison was their sanctuary For them to say that, that at least in prison, they're not being raped and abused, that tells you about the life that they were living behind these perfect gates and manicured gardens in Beverly Hills.
1: Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash
0: Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate, nationwide at Costco. Or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com.
2: You look at that entire behavior on the part of Jose, everything that he did, it was in the family. Obviously, it's built outside the family. It was in his work. And of course, that's where we end up with this wild revelation, because I certainly didn't know this at the time. Laura, I I, I don't know if you, you know, but I knew of the Minuto boy band having a history of being sexually victimized. I know that one or more of them had come out and said they were sexually victimized, but I had no idea of any connection to Jose Menendez. And now it makes so much more sense, like you said, to have this one guy who is on both sides of a a very, very, very traumatic type of offense to his family and and I believe uh, you know and I know you're going to get into this in a bit but I believe that Jose treated his wife the same way he treated his sons and everybody else in the world as including the one or more members of Menudo that he got access to so we have somebody who is clearly and a serial offender somebody who's been doing this year after year after year from one son to the next from Most likely his wife, but also then to outside to people he got access through his job. And this documentary series actually really ties a very, very strong case together between what Jose did to his sons and what Jose did to this member of Minuto. I feel like I think you brought it up, but, you know, that first trial They were able to bring in the evidence, but in the second trial, they weren't able to bring in any of that evidence, any of that evidence of how Jose was treating them. It's just, to me, it's outrageous in a murder trial to to exclude evidence of long-term sexual victimization and other physical and, and emotional abuse and psychological abuse. Like, how is that not relevant? It's just, it's ridiculous because, and I'd like you to just explain to us A little bit more about this. You mentioned it, but the fact that he was engaging in this pattern of behavior, but victims, when they're being victimized at the moment of victimization, they're the least powerful. And so, victims of this kind of abuse, when they feel trapped in a situation, for example, When your father tells you, you're not going to be able to go away and live at college, you're going to stay here in my control. And then you go to your mother about it and she tells you, oh, I've known about the abuse all along and I'm blaming you for it. That, as you said, the tipping point, the triggering point, whatever it is, that is when they have a moment of power. And that's very typical of of victims in this kind of long term, very abusive relationship. It's when some people are able to leave. But when you feel like you can never leave, what do you do? Again, I agree totally. I'm totally against murdering people because of this. Murder is not the best solution, let's put it that way. But if there is no other escape that they can think of, that they can execute, then I understand the psychology behind it, the motivation behind it. But it's a very different motivation than the motivation that the the prosecution put forward, which was they just wanted to get the money. That's all they cared about. Yeah, they may have gone shopping afterwards. They may have, quote, celebrated afterwards because they were finally free. But that doesn't mean that was the motive for the killing that motive makes zero sense. But what does make sense is that they were trying to get out of an incredibly abusive situation that they just found out was going to continue to go on.
3: Yes. And when that final door closes and you feel there is no other option, and let's face it, Lisa and Jim, they were right. Because who believed them? And I hate even having to say that they were right, but they were. As in, even if they got the the courage to say, and bear in mind, Jose had said from the age that Eric was five, I gave you life, I can take it away. And you know what? Because he was so exact in that phrase, I believe that that's what was said to Eric. I didn't see anything that was not authentic in their testimony. And the pain that they expressed, I felt was authentic. And so I have no idea why comedians were mocking them in Saturday night TV shows. But perhaps that tells us culturally of where we were Um, and where we are now, right? But I still just find all of that, what they expressed, you could see they didn't want to talk about it. What we know about false alleges is that's the first thing they would talk about. But these boys didn't want to talk openly about the abuse even when their lives were on the line. And they felt they had no option. If you, unless you have walked in their shoes you cannot express an opinion in a courtroom with no background context as to what went on in the cold light of day without understanding those thousand cuts for those boys that have come before right. that took them to that point and that explanation the psychology and the behavior is so important to understand that how they arrived At the decision that killing their parents was the only option and that's why the court failed them that's why the judge failed them and leslie abramson i mean what an advocate in the sense that she really fought for them and i didn't see anyone else fighting for them and that's what the boys understood right no one's going to fight for us no one's going to advocate for us we just have to do it ourselves and that's why the premeditation came in and the emotional element of the kill and afterwards the acting out Yes, they went on spending sprees, but I agree, Jim, that absolutely was not the motivation. That was the easy grab by the prosecution, by the prosecution. you know, in the second yeah. case. I mean, I don't know if you know David Conn, but I have to say what an unprofessional individual in the way that he shouted at the boys about the death penalty and that Lyle had dead eyes and all these things that he was shouting. Across yeah, if Lyle the had dead
2: eyes, could it possibly have been because he had been sexually victimized by his father for years? I mean, come on. There are psychological effects of that abuse, especially untreated, especially when it continues to go on, especially when you're helpless from helping your brother, your little brother going through the same thing. There's so many things that actually should have been explained by a defense expert, but apparently they were prevented from doing it. And one of the other things that happened, you would talk about comedians, but But it wasn't just comedians. It was the prosecutor saying abuse excuse. It was the media saying abuse excuse. It's not an excuse. Murder is not excused by that, but it is mitigated by being sexually victimized for years by the target of your violent aggression.
0: Well,
3: there is such a thing, Jim though, that the first trial found that there was abuse. There were 51 witnesses. That's why it was so, how can, it's so egregious to say the abuse excuse. And as all of us who've been subjected to abuse can testify to, it's the most insulting thing for someone to say. And digging deep into this case where you've got so many people's testimony about Jose Menendez and who he was and how he treated people. This wasn't straight up what the boys were saying. It came out slowly through lots of different people, including professionals who gave their testimony. So to exclude them and to play that abuse excuse card, I just found it absolutely egregious. It's everything that's wrong with the criminal justice system where it is stacked and rigged against victims and stacked in the favor of perpetrators. And and I say that because if we turn this on its head and think about men who have killed women and children, They're often called crimes of passion in inverted commas, which is something I can't bear, and there's a double standard where those men are seen as misunderstood or good enough fathers, and they did it because she did X or she did Y. And that's just a good enough reason for him to kill. And yet here you've got two boys who are trying to survive something atrocious that happened to them every day of their lives. And they said in Eric's letter, he said that he couldn't deal with it anymore, that He just didn't feel my heart broke reading parts of that letter, which has now been introduced as part of the habeas and quite rightly too. And I have to say the same regarding Menudo. I didn't know about the band Menudo. I didn't know the history. You know, I did ask Umberto about it and he said, oh yes, there was always rumors about sexual abuse. But when you start to understand how the system protected Edgardo Diaz And it rallied around him, everybody in the system, where you had a whistleblower, Bolivar, trying to protect boys, and he was destroyed. So what's the message to victims? Because that's the the problem when you've got the wrong decisions being taken. And, you know, thank goodness for Bolivar and for Robert Brand, they've kept digging 33 years on, you're still digging away on a case because you believe that it was a miscarriage of justice. I mean, it's incredible, really, and a testament to them. And I really hope that the habeas is given due consideration. And at the very least, the Menendez boys, now men, who've served 33 years, at the very least should get a new trial to examine the new evidence. And and they do have family members who, who are clearly heartbroken and guilty ridden by the fact that they could have perhaps changed the course of history if they had all spoken up and done something.
4: And there may well be more victims of Jose Menendez in addition to Roy Rosello, who told his story in the final episode of this Peacock documentary about how he basically was trafficked From Puerto Rico into New York and given to Jose Menendez for the night before their RCA contract was signed uh, between Menudo and uh, Jose Menendez's company at the time, RCA. I mean, if what Lyle says is true, he remembers other Menudo boys being at their house. So if those victims can come forward, it's going to help so many other people. It's going to help Roy's case that he's brought to the the LAPD. It, it could help the Menendez brothers case. I mean, it could unlock a lot.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is by its very nature, the type of new evidence that could be the basis of a habeas corpus peti- petition, another a- an appeal to bring the Menendez brothers back in front of the court and to review the conviction potentially throw out the conviction and get them a new trial this i believe there was error on the part of of the judge in ruling out the opportunity for them to actually put on a defense they did it in the first trial and it ended in a mistrial fully well, six jurors did not agree with a finding of murder And so that's half the jury. And so the fact that they didn't, when they were given this evidence, we're going to bring on one of those jurors next week and actually talk to her about what she heard, the evidence that she heard, how it affected her and how it affected others in the jury room. I think that's going to be incredibly insightful. Thank you, Lisa, for reaching out to her and getting her to, to agree to come on. But this lack of mitigating evidence that they weren't allowed to put on during the trial made it look like in the second trial, these guys were cold, calculated murderers for nothing more than their their own personal greed. I don't believe it. So I'm a father of what? I got to find a babysitter.
5: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's what happens when you give Grammarly to your entire team. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. Grammarly. Easier said, done.
4: I wanted to ask you something about, you know, the the Mendes brothers were held in custody for three years before their trial. So before they were convicted, before their trial for three years. And I think I mean I hate so much of what the prosecution did but I will grant a little bit of slack to the media in that that entire 3 years they contended that they weren't there they were not guilty they had nothing to do with it and then right up until just like a week before the trial their lawyer went on TV and said actually it's because they did that they they were there and they did do this because of sexual abuse so in that context, you can see how the media is like, what? Where is this coming from? Because now we know in hindsight how long it takes victims to disclose. I mean, it, it, it is yeah, so hard. To, we certainly to knew it
2: back in 1989 and 1996, but. You know, the professionals in the field knew it, but the the general public didn't. And what should have happened is the prosecution should have had expert witnesses to explain that to them so that they would charge properly and and be able to actually find justice in this case. But there are celebrated cases like the Jody Plachey case in which. This boy was being sexually victimized by his karate teachers. Karate teachers then abducted him, took him cross state lines to California. And when the police were bringing the, the offender back through the airport, the father was wait, laying in wait in the airport and shot the guy in the head and killed him live on TV. The jury found him responsible for manslaughter and he got no jail time because he was very emotionally reacting to what this guy did to his son and and this is something that juries should have information about because it would have shown the truth rather than this you know sort of look over here look at this money grubbing you know greedy group of guys here that want you know all they killed their parents just for the money It doesn't make sense. It literally doesn't make sense. They would have had to have been, you know, the most psychopathic kids, you know, on the planet to do what the prosecution has said they did, there's no evidence of that. What there is evidence of is that they were trapped and they had no idea how to get out of it.
3: And I would say they were entrapped because with coercive Mm -hmm. control, it's much more about an entrapment of a spider's web. Yeah. Yeah. And where does a kid go? I think people forget about this, that when you're a child or even as you start to get older, the codependence that's brought in and the financial control. And I do Mm. believe Jose Menendez financially controlled them. To the rest of us, they can look like these white privileged kids who had the best life. But he told them just before that he had cut them out the will and that they weren't going to be in the will. What kind of father says that to his sons? And he used every piece of leverage that he could to exploit them, to make them vulnerable and to disempower them. Mm. And to everybody else, the rest of the world, it looks like a very different family setup. And that's why coercive controllers are so dangerous and they are so destructive in their behavior. And of course, as some of the jurors said, the more in, in trial one that they heard from other witnesses. And the more they heard the boys talk the more they understood that what the prosecution was saying didn't match with who they were. And I'll go one step further because the tennis coach who spent a lot of time with them, Charles Wadlington, he basically said he spent all this time coaching them to get them to be ranked players. And he said they had humility, the brothers, that they were nice boys. They were his favourite students. That is at odds and in contradiction to this kind of spoiled. White boy, bratish psychopath caricature that had been put together, I believe, and driven by the prosecution and the DA's office. And let's not forget, the DA's office didn't just lose the OJ Simpson case, the Rodney King case, there were a number of stingers beforehand that they no doubt believed that they had to win this one. And as you talked about, Lisa, the time that they had to wait to go on trial, the world changed in that time. Mm-hmm. And Therefore, there seemed to be, let's bring out the big guns and let's make sure at all costs, these two now men pay for these crimes. And they did so by painting the grisly crime scene. And yes, abuse and murder is grisly and bloody. And horrific, but these boys' lives were unraveled and they were systematically raped and abused. And I can tell you from having talked to thousands of survivors, I can't tell you one who didn't think and ruminate about killing the abuser. Not one. Right. Of course. Right? I, I, of every... I'm right
2: here. I mean you, that those are the kinds Fantasize of things. You, it, have. Right, you right. have nightmares about it. You you want to end the not only the abuse. But the psychological ramifications of abuse, the self-doubt, the self-hatred, the guilt, the shame, oh my God, it's overwhelming. And everyone feels that, everyone who is victimized in that way. When you're victimized by your father, the person who is meant to protect you, that makes it 10 times or 100 times or 1,000 times worse when it goes on year after year after year. It is overwhelming. And for the prosecution not to allow them to address that in the second trial, that's 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 just bullshit. That should not have happened. And I hope they get another opportunity in front of a court.
3: And let's not forget Doctor Anne Burgess. She assessed the boys and she gave testimony to say that she found evidence of sexual abuse. This is why it's so confounding to me that you had good experts like Dr. Ann Burgess, but the concept of coercive control wasn't explained. And I think the fact that abuse is multifaceted, right? That it's multi-layered, particularly when you're a child and coercive control is a parenting choice. He chose to do these things. And why I say, you know, when people say, well, premeditation and these boys fantasized, it's a different fantasy to stop your abuser than it is to fantasize about sexually abusing someone. And I just want to make that distinction that when you are abused, you ruminate to kill the abuser to end the abuse. It has one function to to end the abuse. Now I heard both boys say when they were asked um, and what was the end game effectively? And they said to end the abuse, to stop the abuse, to stop the sex with my dad was what Eric said. Sex with my dad, that's goddamn rape. That's not sex, but of course that's, it is. that's his father's voice, right? When you're listening to them, you're hearing they still respect their father. And the thing that with Roy, but also when I listened to the family give testimony, I think it was Diane, the cousin, and talking with, the, with Jean, who is the sister of Kitty, saying, do you remember with Eric that he used to have these meltdowns if we didn't give him lemon? And then it was ketchup and that he wanted to have this lemon. The reason being was because they were the only two things that would get rid of the taste of semen to the outside Mm -hmm. world. Yeah. And that just makes me feel physically ill to the outside world. You can say, well, these boys are spoiled. They want what they want. They want lemon or ketchup. That's not for a normal wish of wanting it with fries or whatever. That's because of the taste of semen, because their father was raping them orally and anally and people really need to understand that because that level of defiling and when they believe that mum is in on it too and they've been protecting her so when she says that she knew about it that was the final straw and yes with kitty and i do want to just talk about her for a moment because people might think that the two of them were a team and yes there were times when she was abusive and she was cruel and people described her as aloof Well, let's just think about her history that she came from a home that in suburban Chicago and her father was cruel and abusive. The father was abusive to the mother and the mother had checked out. And so for Kitty, growing up with this worse and unhappy situation, she was seen as moody and depressed and dysregulated. And she hated her father. She then goes off to college and she meets Jose, who seems to be this bright, Um, very confident and she was very sporty herself and very confident at college and they hit it off the two of them but gradually her personality as she stopped being a teacher and stayed at home and became the homemaker with the boys her social network when they moved to la she lost a social network and she started to abuse alcohol and drugs Now, when you're being abused, that can be your coping mechanism. And I do believe that she didn't show compassion and care to the boys. When you listen to Eric and Lyle talk about the fact there was never any compassion or hugs or love or, and the boys just wanted their mother to love them. So normally what you see in a coercive control, when you've got a man who's coercively controlling, you might have a protective mother and that normally will Changed the dynamic in the sense that there's a safe place and a safe space for the children with Lyle and with Eric, there was no safe space for them. They were each other's comfort, but they weren't allowed to even talk to each other, so they were so isolated. So it's really quite amazing that something didn't happen sooner without having Mm. anybody. And of course they reached out to cousins and, and to Diane and they asked, is it normal? for your dad to massage your penis and asking things because they just didn't know that tells me they just had no one really around them to be able to talk to as a safe space. And for me, it's unforgivable for both parents. Yes, I do believe Kitty was abused by Jose because he was controlling and domineering and destructive, but, and so for Kitty, it sounds like she was disempowered. She tried to take her own life, but the boys had no one and they were on their own and that's what they learned and the only way to get themselves out of that situation well we know what decision they took but it's it's a heartbreaking case and mm. things have to be reviewed because it is a, an egregious miscarriage of justice in my opinion
2: yeah i agree with you totally well this is a very complicated case and anytime people resort to violence of this nature which you know was extreme it's going to create a serious, serious issue. And the prosecution and the investigators should have been clued in that there must be some overwhelming reason to cause this. And I don't think that they, at least in the second trial, that the defense had the opportunity to prove up why they did what they did. And I think that resulted in an extremely our sentence. So also, I agree, Laura, I do believe that they should have an opportunity to have another shot at justice, because clearly the justice system failed them when they were kids. So next week, we're going to actually bring in one of the jurors from the first trial, the first Menendez trial.
4: Next week, we're going to be speaking with Hazel Thornton, who um, many years ago wrote an incredible book based on her diary that she kept of the case at the time. So it's very a contemporaneous take on what she went through as a juror. And then she's got a new forward in her book that I think you will really, really appreciate. So until next time, this is Real Crime Profile signing out. If you like listening to our show and appreciate the work that Jim and Laura do and their expertise, you can do us a big favor. Please head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to our pod and leave us a five-star rating and write your thoughts about why you enjoy our show. It really, really is important and helps other people find us. Also, did you know that you can share our episode? It is so easy. On the Apple Podcast app, click the three dots, drop down menu and you'll see an option to share to your socials or to a particular person and then they can hear for themselves why you love listening to Real Crime Profile. Thank you so much for your
1: support.
2: Hey Prime members, you can listen to Real Crime Profile ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. The wait is over.
3: So far, you're not losing. The only thing you're losing is my patience.
2: Quickly, I see that. Ding. The queen of the courtroom is back. I didn't do anything.
3: You wouldn't know the truth if it came up and slapped you in the face. I see he's not intimidated by anything. I can fix that.
2: New cases.
3: She wanted to fight me? Leave her. Alo. OK, so, um. Not, this is not a so.
2: Real Crime Profile was created by Jim Clementi, Laura Richards, and Lisa Zambetti. Produced by Laura Richards, Lisa Zambetti, Jim Clementi, and XG Productions, and distributed by Wondery. Editing by Nick Jaworski at Podcast Monster. Logo art by Jim Clementi. Music composed and performed by Simba Tsumba.